What's up, everybody? You are listening to List It, the show where me and my guests rank things in pop culture. And I want to let you know that we have some brand new episodes that are going to be rolling out here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, But in the meantime, in the meantime, I wanted to look back at some of my favorite moments from interviews over the last few months. And guys, I'm really, really excited about the guests that we have uh, coming out. And that's the other thing. I, I say I'm like really excited a lot. And I re-listen to a lot of episodes, obviously, as I'm kind of putting this this episode this episode in particular together and uh, just kind of reflecting on all of the episodes we recorded so far. I noticed that I really go out of my way to articulate my excitement. Uh, maybe I should tamper that or maybe I should just keep it going because... It is true. I feel so privileged to be able to talk to so many awesome people on this show. And that it really means a lot that not only you all listen week to week, but also I get to have the, these incredible guests on to share their insights. And I'm telling you, you're going you're gonna to be excited too when you see who's coming down the pipe here in the next few weeks. But in the meantime, to hold you over for the new shows, I want to look back at some of my favorite moments from listed episodes in the last few months. Um... As you guys know, I try to really mix it up with topics week to week. Obviously, uh, my background is in music and pop culture, but I also love science. I love discussions about faith. Um, I love, you know, particularly like digging in with musicians uh, who can kind of break down their creative process. But I also like just talking about movies and TV shows with some of my friends. So I wanted to put together a few clips that to me uh, were just really fun moments from the last few months with, with some of my favorite guest that I was able to have. I want to start off with a, a singer and a songwriter uh, who've, I've, who I've listened to a ton over the years. He is the front man for a band called Need to Breathe. His name is Bear Reinhardt. And I've listened to Need to Breathe for a long time, and I've really enjoyed their kind of musical evolution. Um, but I wanted to dig in with Bear. I had Bear come on, and you can go back and listen to any of these episodes. They're on uh, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find these. Um, but I wanted to talk with Bear about five of his favorite albums of all time. But then I also wanted to talk about uh, five uh, kind of moments from from his career that I wanted to see if he could kind of dig into and provide some insights into. And the moment that I picked to talk about with Bear for this episode was when he talked about writing the song Wasteland from the album Rivers in the Wasteland. Now, if you remember that album, it's a really heavy album. It's probably one of the darkest in the band's career. And I wanted to kind of kind of talk to Bear about that. You know, they they're known for uh, songs that can be soulful, that can be joyful. Uh, you know, they have uh, songs that you'll hear on top forty radio. They have songs that will play on kind of like gospel-y station stations. They have songs that are kind of Americana and country leading. But Wasteland was really different. Um, it was it was heavy and kind of sorrowful, but they had these tinges of hope. And so when I had the opportunity to talk to Bear, I wanted him to talk about that point in his life, that point in his career, and what inspired a song like Wasteland. We're going to hear a clip from the song and also talk about the season that Bear was in, how he was really fighting depression and use the songwriting process to talk about things that maybe he didn't feel at the moment, but ended up being what he was hoping for. It was a really great conversation, and here's a portion of it. 
my next one, uh, you, you alluded to it earlier, and I feel bad. So, so I'm going through, and I'm kind of editing my list on down to five, but trying to take it interesting ways to talk. But I do want to talk about uh, um, uh, the opener off of uh, Rivers in the Wasteland, the song Wasteland, which, like yep. you said, has a really, you know, kind of gripping first line. I'm the first one to die, in line to die when the cavalry comes. But there's another kind of refrain that I wanted to see if you could break down for me. Uh, there's a, a, a where you talk about a greatness that you felt that you once had inside you, but somehow it changed. And it really feels in a lot of ways that that this album, again, this is just from a, a, a listener standpoint, it seems like a tough coming of age album of a recognition yeah. of some good things, some negative things. But I think you encapsulate a lot in that line where there's a great, yeah. there's a greatness inside of me that somehow it changed. Tell me about yeah. that. And, and, and was it emblematic of, of larger things that were happening kind of with you in the band? Yeah. I mean, that, that was, I mean, I, we've talked about it some, but I mean, that was the most um, troubling, depressing, you know, dark time of the band by far. And, mm. you know, it took us probably, I mean, well over a year to make that record. Um, I mean, I wrote Wasteland in Van Nuys, California. We're out there at Sound City, um, the studio where they had made, you know, Tom Petty records yeah. and stuff like that. Um, and I, uh, I wrote it one night in a, like we were at staying at a days in hotel. It was like kind of a dump, not great. Yeah. You know, sort yeah. of. And we were out there for six weeks and we uh, literally got, I think three songs from that period. Oh man. Um, so just, it was just a really dark time and yeah. it, you know, there wasn't a lot of good communication and it was, it didn't feel good to go to work. And so all that stuff I think played out, you know, and I, I've said this before, Wasteland, I, I was definitely sort of you know, you can call it verbally vomiting on the page in a way. Like I was writing exactly what I was thinking at the time. Yeah. Um, and that's what depression does. It says, well, I'm never, I'll never be the same as I was. I'll, I, you know, this, I probably lost it. You know, all those, all those things were kind of going through and I just let those song things go into the record. Um, there's a really positive line on there. It's, you know, if God's on my side, who can be against yeah. me is in there. And honestly, when I wrote it, and this has happened a couple of times in our career, I wrote it not as a joke, but more like, I don't know if I believe this. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, just more like, man, if you can hear what I'm saying and how I feel, it's like, sure, maybe that's true. I hope it's true, but I don't, you know what I mean? There's not yeah. a conviction to the way I sang it. Um, and so it's been, it was really interesting to see how people react to that song later because I think people did feel like some uplifted feeling of like, well, he made it. I can make it. Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. like, yeah. you know, when I wrote it, I really hadn't made it. I was in a pretty bad spot. I'm the first one in line to die when the cavalry comes. Yeah, it feels like the great divide has already come. Yeah, I'm wasting my way through days Losing youth along the way Oh, if God is on my side Oh, if God is on my side Oh, if God is on my side Who can be against me? I feel like what you were able to do with that particular song was take that feeling and put it into a sound because that it is a heavy song. It, it, yeah. you, you, you say it with a weight that isn't like right. something that just they write up the Sunday school teacher writes up on the board, right. you know? Right. 
Yeah, and it was cool. That's a, that was one of the only bright moments of the of that record was we we went in and I wrote it in the hotel room. Um, Bo came in like you know after I'd written the verses and stuff, and he's yeah. like, "I think this is good." Um, and we we cut it the next morning. Oh wow! So it was very um, that rarely happens. You know, occasionally it does, but it it was very raw when I didn't have a chance to think like, is that the way I should say it? Or, yeah. you know, it's just, um, and so anyway, it's one of the ones I'm most proud of and it, I can take no credit for it. It happened to me, you know? Yeah. All right. So in addition to having song singer songwriters come on a lot to kind of break down some of their own music and their own creative processes, I also like to have artists on to break down the careers and the art of other artists that I really admire. So when I reach out to these next two to rank all of Kanye West albums, I knew I was in for some really killer insights because my guests were Matt Carney and Derek Minor, both incredible artists. I definitely encourage you to check out their music. Both of them have recent projects out. You can go check out on Spotify. Um, Um, But it was a really fun conversation talking about Kanye's career, but also the impact that Kanye had, not just on hip hop, but on Matt and Derek personally. Uh, And and one of my favorite points in the conversation was when we got to talk about maybe Kanye's most polarizing album. That's saying a lot because he has a lot of polarizing work. But I got to ask him about 808s and Heartbreak. It was really cool to hear Matt Carney and Derek Minor break down why, even though it's kind of a, a unique album in the Kanye catalog, it's one that to this day is still having a major impact on music. I want to bring up next another album that I'm, I I have a feeling we're going to all have different opinions about because it's one of the more polarizing in his catalog. Um, and it's from, from 2008, 808s and Heartbreak, a huge oh, okay. departure from what he was kind of known for at the time and really sort of, you know, <clears throat> this backpack rap, auto-tune, sort of emo rap that was... You know, he he kind of decided to say all of the bluster that he did with graduation, college dropout, late registration, all of that is kind of gone. And this is a guy kind of struggling with the place he's in sonically because it is sort of like this, you know, kind of emo-y type of album. But I mean, there's also lyrics where he's struggling with his success. He said, you know, the line, my friend should be, in, uh, my friend showed me pictures of his kids. All I could show him was pictures of my cribs. He said his daughter has a brand new report card. All I got was a brand new sports car. He's starting to grapple with the monster of himself that he's created, but sonically, it's sort of this like almost like emo album. What are you, what's your guys' take, Derek? We'll start with you, man. On eight oh eight and heartbreak. Um, it's it's a little lower on my list because I didn't fall in love with it, and I think it was one of those records that you had to be where you had to be where he was at when the album came out, and I just wasn't there. But I will say that modern hip hop has bit off this album oh, man, so for much, the yeah. past, I mean, for the past 10 years. Like the whole auto-tune, sing, rap thing, you're looking at it. Here, I mean, you take this album, T-Pain and Wayne all kind of coming at the same time. And that's what you have. That so I will say, although it's further down on my list as an album, I think it's one of the top. If you're talking cultural moments and hip hop, uh, game changing albums, you have to put it towards the top. If you're talking about his list, seems like streetlights glowing happen to be just like moments passing. I'm no. 
Matt, I'm interested in your take on this one because I feel like this is his most vibey album. Like it's got really strong vibe, right? Like you kind of know, like when you hear it, you feel something. And I feel like your music does that. You, you know, when, when one of your songs comes on, you, you feel it right away. What's your take on 808s and Heartbreak? Uh, why, thank you. Vibey, I like that. Um, I actually really like this record. Um, I At first, I was a little like, okay, Kanye wants to sing. That's interesting. And so he's just cranking auto-tune. And the way he just owned that, and he was like, no one had really done that that I knew of. I mean, obviously there was like T-Pain and that thing. Um, I'm trying to think if that was before. That was slightly before this, obviously. And like Neo or what? I'm trying, who was else the real auto-tune dudes? Yeah, it was, it was, it was T-Pain. It was Wayne. Yeah, Wayne, Wayne was starting yeah. to was starting to do that. Um, Neo was, I, was, was a pop artist. So sorry, I yeah, consider him. yeah, not like I, I. I am trying to think my my early two thousands R and B auto tune. But but even just samples, it's not that they, sharp. They, they but, would take a lot of samples and just kind of auto tune it or kind of do that voice modulation, you know. But really, he he was sort of on the forefront of it. But like singing with auto tune on in the way he was doing it. Like Heartless is like a he's singing like that, yeah. Is was not no one had really done that that I knew of, in the way that he was doing that felt like cred and kind of um, interesting. I I see. I just I love this record that he worked with this guy named Mr. Hudson who was I was a fan of. Uh, he's a producer on a lot of it, and um, yeah, Hudson super super slept on dude. He's he's dope. I love Love Lockdown with the, but what was also cool was it's like this real, it was mostly 808s, obviously. Mm. That kind of thing where it was super simple, wasn't as common. And then he would have these weird like tribal drums come in like, yeah. like Love Lockdown. I love that song. It's one of my favorite pop songs. And yeah, I don't know. I, I would say I really like this record. I wouldn't, it, I, it's not front to back like my favorite but i really enjoy listening to this record as a songwriter it's a little more songwritery driven too yeah. it's like a little more normal songwriter structure like i would write you know like first chorus first chorus bridge chorus kind of thing like yeah. there he's you can tell i mean this is the era when he was really i think struggling with being like making rap songs and he would talk about like i want to be elvis i want to be like and and i i do get that limitation that in different seasons of my life where I did more spoken word versus versus singing. Like when you feel hemmed in, like, man, I got to like talk about this over this kind of thing. I I can tell he's like experimenting with those in this record. Like, can I just sing? Can I write like a more traditional old school song? And I don't know. That's interesting to me. So earlier this year, I got to talk to my good friend, Liz Forkin Bohannon. Now, Liz, in addition to being my friend, she's also a hero of mine. Man, she does some incredible stuff with her brand, Seiko Designs. Seiko Designs is known for their handbags, for their apparel, and tons of cool products uh, for women. And Seiko was also founded to provide opportunity and jobs and education for women in sub-Saharan Africa. It's a really great cause. And Liz is such a cool person. She's also the author of the book, Beginner's Pluck, uh, 
which tells her story and talks about being an entrepreneur, but also someone who deeply, deeply cares about making an impact. So when I had Liz on, I wanted to talk to her about other books that have inspired her. Now, you definitely should check out Beginner's Pluck, but it was really cool to have Liz on because we both made our list of, of books that have inspired us. Uh, they're both really nonfiction books that inspired us on these particular lists, but we made them independently. But we both put books, different books, but by both by Brene Brown. Now, Brene Brown is an incredible author, and Liz breaks down her book, Braving the Wilderness. And we just talk about the impact that Brene's Brown writing has had on both of us and how she's able to kind of bring these big ideas to readers in really relatable ways, using not just kind of anecdotes, but actual data and social science uh, to kind of demonstrate things, not just about society in general, but also how we can respond to it and be aware of it. It was a really interesting conversation. I want to bring you a part of it. Here is Liz Forkin Bohannon. I think I'm going to talk about Braving the Wilderness. Okay. Um, I reread this in 2020 um, because it felt very apropos. I think I've been feeling a growing sense of ideological loneliness is mm. probably how I would describe it. Um, and I think Brene Brown's book about kind of, you know, the title of the book is Braving the Wilderness. Like this idea that when you step outside of a known entity that is, um, you know, for your like ideological tribe, if you will, um, that that's a really scary, lonely place to be in. And it's why a lot of people never do it because it's a lot safer to be kind of in the, um, in the safety of mm. a group that all thinks the exact same about all of the same things. Um, and I think in our culture right now, what we're seeing is that those they're getting so much further apart from one mm. another, that the temptation and uh, almost like the mandate to, to, to choose, like you have to belong in one of these camps. I actually just um, was listening to, I haven't read Obama's um, latest book, the promised land yet. Yeah. But I heard him on Brene's, um, Brene Brown's podcast. He kind of just like talks about this, this thing that has happened in American society where there really has been kind of this separation and filtering. Um, and I've felt that on a mental yeah. level, on an emotional level, I've felt a bit, I'm going to say, um, intellectually, like that my ability to be really intellectually honest and nuanced, um, it feels more difficult because mm. it feels like that pressure to like, you're, you know, you're getting judged on a tweet or yeah. you need to be able to sum up your views on this thing in a way that, um, is perfectly consistent Yeah, with this, you know, with this group's way of thinking about that thing. Um, and braving the wilderness was really helpful for me and just kind of exploring that, acknowledging that, um, how difficult it is but then also staying rooted in that journey and believing that, okay, there's other people that are on this journey, <laughs> that this ultimately is a good and worthy journey where I'm going to become mm. more of who I was created to be. Uh, you know, Brene Brown has a saying, I think it's like, uh, it, what is it? Strong hearts, strong back, soft front. I should do more research before I'm on these podcasts. No, no, soft it's okay. heart. But I really yeah. like that kind of concept of like being rooted and really strong with like, this is who I am and this is my belief, but also really open to changing and growing and kind of striking that balance between curiosity and rootedness. Um, I just found it really helpful as a leader, as a human yeah. in the world today. Uh, I really appreciate how um, research 
driven her work is, is just like, okay, this is coming out of 20 years of sociological, like legitimate research. Um, you know, not just like someone running their mouth about what they, what they think. So yeah, it was, it was a big help to me this year. Yeah. Well, it's so funny. We did, we, we, for, so listeners know we did not compare lists beforehand, but I have a Brene Brown book on my list okay. as well. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, uh, you, you know, your selection, I feel like a lot of these can be, I feel like social media is sort of this huge, you can look at it, you can look at the data from it, you can just look anecdotally at it as sort of this huge psychological experiment because a lot of people just get unfiltered access to say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And uh, the cool thing about Brene Brown is she is an academic. She is brilliant. These aren't just ideas that she has. She's able to back them up with research. And I feel like, you know, your selection really is an indictment on the echo chambers that mm-hmm. social media allows us to create, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can, we only have to listen to the voices that we want to listen to, and we and we can, we are fully equipped to empower confirmation bias at every turn, where mm-hmm. we're only going to say things that we know are going to please a certain people for the sake of pleasing them, mm-hmm. and not seek out uh, opinions that don't confirm our own biases. Mm-hmm. But it, the you know, but the my select my Brene Brown selection too. I felt like also had a, a, a different indictment, but also on social media when you kind of reread it because it was released in two thousand seven. I thought it was just me, and the construct of this book is it's sort of a takedown of perfectionism, mm-hmm. and it's it's her look at the 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 subtitle is telling the truth about perfectionism, inadequacy, and power. And the major takeaway, I don't want to give too much away of the book because I, I do I feel like people can benefit from reading anything Brene Brown writes. But one of the really interesting takeaways from the book is that it's actually a misnomer that people are attracted to perfection. Um, you know, the research mm-hmm. points that we think that, you know, but in actuality, what people are actually attracted to, the people who have the most influence and and hold the most, you know, power long term are ones who learn to embrace imperfections mm-hmm. and are able to use their own vulnerabilities and imperfections to demonstrate their humanity is mm-hmm. to show, hey, I have flaws like you. But she says perfection isn't what attracts people. It's people who radiate self-acceptance, which Ooh. is a really interesting uh, distinction because mm-hmm. a lot of people think in order to accept myself, I have to be perfect. You know, that we mm-hmm. can, we, this is the Instagram filter era where if we want every image that we project of ourselves to be perfect, but really what people are looking for is self-acceptance. You know, with both, I, it's funny that themes are kind of emerging, like, you know, the idea of privilege in, in a couple of books, but the idea of like, what the, you know, social media really accelerates the dark side of some of these human behaviors, but mm-hmm. Brene Brown does a really good job of kind of debunking them. Yeah. I love that. I love the idea that people are drawn. So it's like, ultimately we all want to be more accepting of ourselves. Yeah. I think about this documentary that I watched so long ago. I think it was like girls growing up in America and it maybe had a focus on like body image and eating disorders and kind of how rampant that is. And I remember so clearly this scene where this mom was like standing in front of a mirror critiquing herself. And Mm. then she turned around and told her, you know, you know, teenage or pre-teenage daughter, like, no, 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 you're fine. You're perfect. And you know, you're fine just the way you are and how empty that was. And it's like, Mm. of course your child, if they see you treating yourself and holding yourself to that standard, like your words of like, but you're okay. You're beautiful. You're perfect. How God made you are completely empty and meaningless. It's like, yeah, if you don't actually believe it for yourself, it's really hard for other people to get that message from you, even if you're saying it like with your words. And I think about that 
a lot in leadership, but it's like, if one of my primary goals as a leader is, is, um, is for people to, to feel that sense of self-acceptance mm-hmm. and, um, that like, I kind of have to do put in the hard work of like actually believing it for myself yeah. before I can help other people believe it for themselves. Yeah. And, and she goes as far as saying that vulnerabilities, not only are they not liabilities, you know, but vulnerabilities are actually assets because yeah. it expands your ability to relate to other people. You know, yeah. that's, that's when you, it's so inspiring when you see someone who's a great speaker, but also maybe struggle with something like a speech impediment, like stuttering or yeah. something, because it, it, you're not attracted to the perfection of the speech. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of people, mm-hmm. you can watch a stage play and get good monologues, but to get the authenticity of someone working out their thoughts through quote unquote imperfection, it is inspiring and it kind of makes you relate and it's kind of empowering for, for kind of the average person. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Today's episode of Listit is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is a learning platform with online classes taught by the world's best practitioners. They offer personalized on-demand learning in topics like design, photography, entrepreneurship, marketing, business analytics, and a ton more. Now, I want to tell you about a class that I recently took called Productivity for Creatives. Build a system that brings out your best. Now, in addition to Listit, I also do a podcast called Hiding Something, and I get to manage a lot of content here at Ironclad. I really enjoy the creative process, but that's why classes like this are so beneficial. It's taught by Thomas Frank, who's an author, a YouTuber, an entrepreneur. And he talks about things like scheduling time, efficiency, how to find inspiration, and even like creating a workspace that enhances your creativity. It's a really interesting class. Skillshare offers a lot of really cool classes like Artivism, Create Inspiring Art for Change by Nicola Smith, Creating Your Own Dream Career, Uncover and Apply Your Creative Strength. That's from Andy J. Pizza. And there's one that I think a lot of listed listeners will dig called Portrait Photography, Shoot and Edit, Instagram-worthy shots. Hey, you can explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash listed and you get a free trial of a premium membership. Remember, that's Skillshare.com slash listed. All right, back to the show. All right, so Adam Smith is a journalist. He is a provocateur. He is uh, one of the funniest and smartest guys I know. And Adam's been on a couple times, and I've got some more shows planned with Adam uh, coming up soon. Uh, Adam wanted to come on. I initially had him on, I think this was, man, uh, sometime last year. And we talked about our favorite unintentionally hilarious action movies. It was one of the hardest I've laughed re-listening to a show I've done all season. Not because of me, but because of Adam's insights. So Adam uh, pitched to me another episode. He's like, hey man, because we're both fathers of young parent uh, of young uh, children, and Adam hit me up, and he was like, hey man, we should do an episode where we talk about unintentionally hilarious kid and family shows. Now, uh, I kind of cheated on my list, um, but. It ended up being a pretty fun conversation with Adam about a TV show from the late 60s called My Mother the Car, starring Jerry Van Dyke, a family show uh, that uh, sadly only made it a few episodes, uh, but was really fun to come chop it up about all these years later. Here's me and Adam talking about the unintentional hilarity of My Mother the Car. 
Let's go ahead and jump into the choices because I feel like there are numerous examples of these. Adam, I'll kick it off here. And mine is a little cheating because I, I didn't, this isn't a straight up children's show. I, frankly, I don't even know who the show was made for. It was made in 1965, but it was certainly like family oriented. And the reason I love it is because it, re- it, it goes into the pop culture tropes that I, that still baffle me to this day. So this show came out, it was 1965, and basically it was at a time when every show had to have some sort of gimmick, but often those gimmicks involve some sort of unneeded sci-fi twist, like right. a talking yeah, horse. Right, concept TV. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, you had like, oh, well, it's a, it's a farm, but wait, the horse talks, and he gives it, <laughs> you know, sage advice to the farmhands, or, 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 you know, the daughter's a robot, or, you know, you know, it's a sitcom, except with talking dinosaurs. It, it, like, right. there had to be that, that sort of trope. So this, this program, Adam, is called My Mother the car. the car. Have you ever heard of their show? Yes. <laughs> it stars Jerry Van Dyke, uh, the elder, the late elder brother of Dick Van Dyke, who ironically, I think is actually pretty funny. Like when I he was on Jerry coach, when, like on coach back in the day, he was one of the brilliant. highlights of the show. Brilliant. Yeah. He's a great comedian. Everybody knows in the second life, we all come back sooner or later. As anything from a pussycat to a man eating alligator. <laughs> Well, you all may think my story is more fiction than it's fact But believe it or not, my mother did Decided she'd come back as a car so the premise of the show, which, like I said, it, it's it's a it's a very family oriented show, and I did for the for research for this. I went and and watched a couple of episodes to try to get an understanding of who this is made for. And I, and here's how I know in my in my research, here's how I know it's made for families. This is the level of of wholesomeness. There was one thing that censors determined must be deleted. And it was a scene when the car backfired because we can't even have the implication of flatulence. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we can't have the implication of flatulence here. Like we can't have the car backfire. Yes. That's a reincarnated dead woman. Yes, we're we're going to have to uh, uh, scrub every reference of the word tailpipe. <laughs> So it's definitely safe for kids. And this is a show that has no laugh track. And it was honestly hard for me to really understand when they were telling jokes and when this was just some bizarre experiment gone horribly wrong. So the premise is like a terrible waking nightmare. That's what it feels like. Because so the opening scene, Jerry Van Dyke goes to purchase a vehicle. Okay, we jump straight to it. There's no character development. It's just Jerry Van Dyke wandering around a car lot. He then, you know, sees this old car that he bumps into. It's beat up and he gets into it. And through the radio, the voice of his mother appears. Okay. And his she's not even mother. that. His dead, his mother is dead. And the other thing is they jumped right to the car lot scene. There's no character <laughs> development. I know nothing about Jerry Van Dyke and I know nothing about his mother, what kind of relationship they had or how they died or what made her reincarnate into a car. It, because the, the opening credits basically make a case like the theme song and that's the other thing about shows these kind of shows the theme song basically tell you everything you need to know to jump right yeah the theme song is the exposition exactly and the theme song for this show literally just makes a case that we all come back somehow this one just happened to be a talking car though there's no more reincarnated characters in the whole show yeah okay right off the bat you know you are introducing a worldview 
that like, <laughs> like, okay, I need you to unpack this a bit more. We all yeah. come back. Some of us as inanimate objects. Can you, can you maybe dive a bit deeper into that before you skip straight to the hilarious yuck yucks? And, and wouldn't it stand to reason that if Jerry Van Dyke's mother came back as a car, there'd be other you know, haunted cars driving around. Like we don't meet any re- reincarnated yeah, they, objects. They they didn't say, you know, in this bizarre situation, a woman came back as a car. They said, we all come back <laughs> because even, yeah, exactly. Like, even if they would have said like his mother was hit by a car and, and during the, the, the horrific accident, there was a lightning strike and somehow her soul fused into it. Be like, okay. I got it. That, that, you know, I'll suspend my disbelief enough to want to enjoy the show, you know, but they don't even give us that. It's literally everyone. This happens to everyone. So it's like, you know, we've gone from hilarious 1960s sitcom to David Cronenberg body horror before we even get past the credits. <laughs> yeah, David Cronenberg probably loved this because he did that movie Crash where people literally crash in cars <laughs> and fuse with them. So it, it, the, brings, the, it brings a whole new level to that movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A whole new sick level of David Cronenbergian body horror. So around Christmas time, I had writer and podcaster Tish Oxenrider on listed. Tish is an incredible writer. She writes about faith and travel and spiritual practices. You should definitely check out her book, At Home in the World, and also the one that she released this Christmas time called Shadow and Light, Journey into Advent. Now, the reason I like her her writing, in addition to just her being a really uh, great writer and thinker, uh, is it's very practical. And so, especially in her book, uh, uh, Shadow and Light, she talked about spiritual practices that you can incorporate into your life that that you don't really have to be like a monk to try to undertake. Um, and during our conversation, we were both kind of discussing what are kind of the everyday practices that we've incorporated that have made a major impact. Um, and we had a lot of fun because we both decided to put on our list the power of going for a walk. I know that might sound like not the most profound thing in the world, but I'm telling you, during the pandemic, as we kind of talk about in this clip, I started incorporating kind of walks around the block. I'll put in the the AirPods and just just kind of go for a stroll. No destination, just kind of doing a loop uh, and honestly, no real pace. And man, it's such a, a kind of life-giving experience. It's something, something that can be really impactful to do every day. It was really fun to get Tish's own perspective on a simple practice, like just going for a walk. Here's Tish and writer. Before the pandemic, this is something I just never did. And that's going for walks. Like I, 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 there was a time when I run a lot. Like I did, you know, I had the year where I did like a marathon and it was like, so regiment, even pre COVID, like I, I would, I was very like, the gym was still open so you could go and do your whole thing. But, you know, once COVID hit, we, and you can't, we couldn't really go anywhere as a family. You started taking family walks and I really started enjoying that, you know, just kind of walking around the block with my wife and kids. But then I, during my lunch break, I just started taking like a 25 minute walk. And I was shocked at, when I say profound, I mean, it's like a reboot of the day. I mean, if I'm having like a stressful morning or, you know, just it didn't go right or something, even if I had a great morning, a walk really kind of has this recentering effect. I, I, when I was a kid, I would sometimes stay with my grandfather and he started every morning with a walk around the neighborhood. And I mean, never missed it. He would, he would do the mall thing if, if it was too, if the weather was too inclement, but man, it has really been a life-changing thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm laughing because <laughs> that's my number three as well. Oh, nice. Um, yes. So for me, a daily walk is huge. I've been doing this for about two years now and it, it changes everything. You're exactly right. Now I tend to do mine it, at different times of day, depending on the time of the year, because I'm ridiculous about the weather. So, you know, August, July or so I, I live in central Texas. Yeah. Um, it is so, so, so hot by the afternoon. So I do mine in the yeah. morning, but this time of year, you know, in the winter, I do mine in the middle of the day. And our, the reason I do this is because I'm a morning person and I get kind of a second wind in the evening, but my afternoon is when I just naturally have a brain slump kind of like yeah. after lunch, I just feel myself going like, Oh, I could use a nap. And so I take advantage of that time to like a low key walk. Like you said, I'm not trying to log a certain amount of time or, or distance. I'm just walking. I work from home. I have a dog that works out really well because she needs to be walked. And, um, you know, this sounds funny because I'm in central Texas, but there's snow outside, which is very rare for us. Yeah. Um, and I've learned this new word. It's nor well, new to me. It's Norwegian. It's uh, I'm I don't know if you can even say it right. Free live sliv, I think free okay. sliv, whatever it is. So yeah. I was reading about it over the break. What it is, is it's this Norwegian idea. And I guess like psychologists are touting it right now during the pandemic is saying, you've got to embrace free loose live like the Norwegians. And what it is, is it's this idea of basically getting over the cold and going out anyway. So ah. <laughs> it's embracing the idea of like, yeah, it's winter, it's cold, yeah. but don't use that as an excuse to not go outside. It's what is that phrase? Like there's no bad weather, just bad clothing. Um, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's that kind of idea. So it is very easy for me to say like, oh no, it's too cold. I need to be under this blanket and work. And then by 5 p.m. I'm, I just feel like a slug. But if I just choose to like, nope, this is a day where I'm going to wear my bigger coat and my hat, yeah. then it's all fine. We're, we're totally capable of being outside. I have zero excuses where I am. So just embracing that idea for a lot of us. I think goes a long way. All right. So one of my musical heroes for a long time has been Chris Caraba. I, man, when I was probably starting about 15 or 16, the music of Further Seems Forever and Dashboard Confessional, um, it, it just meant a lot to me. And I've loved his music over the years. Uh, it's been really cool to follow him from kind of this indie rock guy making interesting music to someone who, you know, literally became kind of a pop star to now he's at a stage in his career where he's still releasing great music. You know, you can hear a dashboard song pretty regularly on, on primetime TV shows and things like that. Uh, but also he is cited as an influence for a lot of big pop stars that are making music now. You know, Taylor Swift is no, a noted dashboard fan as is uh, uh, artists like Casey Musgrave. So it's been really cool to follow his career. And that's why I was really excited to have Chris on uh, to not just talk about some of his favorite songs, which he did, uh, but also I wanted to talk about some of my favorite songs songs that he's written. Now, the conversation took an interesting turn um, because he got pretty vulnerable, kind of more vulnerable than than I was even expecting because uh, months ago, uh, Chris Carabo was in a really, really serious motorcycle accident and had an extended and very painful recovery. Um, and during the interview, he talked about uh, a song that helped him through the experience, also helped him to kind of more deeply appreciate and value the love of his wife, who 
really helped him through that awful experience of you know having to recover from this really serious accident. It was uh, it was a really raw moment, but also it was one that I really valued because you know when you hear the artwork of a lot of artists and musicians, you know that's where they can be the most honest and vulnerable. But it's really impactful when you hear them do it in conversation and really talk about uh, not just the impact the different music has had on them, but just that uh, their music can hopefully have on other people that are, are going through similar situations. So with all that to say, here is part of my conversation with Chris Garaba. This has been a big one for me in the last year. The song is by uh, Uno, and it's called Sunlight. Hmm. And I think like, you know, we talk, I, I'll probably talk about opening lines of songs probably more than, than this time. I think I did with another Michael yeah. uh, on new music and uh, certainly, you know, on Sunlight. It's like there's something about the first line of a song. I know people put a lot of stock in a chorus. But if a song for me doesn't have me in the first line, it's probably never going to have me. Mm. And in Sunlight, the lyrics are, you, you hold my hand. And tell me it's fine. It's getting rough, but we're still alive. Mm. And to set the stage for this, I didn't hear this song when it came out. I heard it about nine months ago uh, as I was laying in a hospital bed. And then kept on hearing it as I laid in a bed for about 20 hours a day, maybe 20, 23 hours a day for the next two or three months. And my wife would just hold my hand and she would say with a, in the least reductive way, she'd say in this like very powerful way, everything's going to be all right. And clearly everything was not going to be all right anytime soon. Yeah. But to be able to have my hand in hers and be so fully reassured when I was so far from from fine yeah is it was uh instrumental in getting me through those those very difficult four four or five six months mm. before i was able to get out of bed and, and function yeah. it's a long time to be it's a long time it's a long time and she got me through it and i listened to that song a lot and just knew what it felt like yeah you know i knew very much how it felt like to just have your hand held when things are okay and know that that person loves you. Yeah. And then also when you like are deep in the deep end of a, of a, of a hard place, yeah. just knowing somebody loves you that much yeah. is a priceless thing. That, that is so powerful. And, and the way that that line encapsulates that is, is really beautiful. And, you know, one of the, the songs, you know, as you were talking that kind of reminded me of is, um, you know, from, from your, from your catalog is heartbeats here, um, or heartbeat here, because it's really a song about healing it. Well, at least my interpretation, I, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a listener, but it, you know, that 
the way I interpreted that song, the first time I heard it, it was one of those songs that it had that same kind of thing. I just needed to hear that where there's a place where you can surround yourself with people that, you know, you can sleep for a thousand years. You can heal. You can bask in other people's um, affection for you. And that's what so is, is, is healing. You know, is there, you know, that song in particular obviously was written years before the experience that you, that you had. But I wonder as you were kind of going through that experience and your wife was there by your side, if you even reflected on, on that song of your own, because it does seem thematically to have some, you know, discuss some of the things that, that you articulated. You know, Jesse, I, I don't think that I reflected on the song directly but the song is written about it's a it's a song about how i feel about my wife and my Mm. absolute confidence in her and an astonishment at her 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 successes in life as a human being as a business person as a wife as a friend and her adventure and you know her her adventurism, her 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 streak towards adventure, um, and her willingness to charge at life, mm. um, and the thing that I think I can give her that would probably be most valuable, and I think this is what I was trying to say in the song: is I will stand behind you and I will stand beside you, not so that you can do it so that I can marvel at it. Mm. I feel it in my ribs, feel it in my soul. The pulse just grows so loud and so clear. Let your heart beat here. Let your heart it's so powerful that you've been able to articulate those things, but also kind of let other people share them because, you know, that isn't something a lot of people could do. And I think a lot of people, you know, as listeners benefit from that. And and it's a really powerful thing. All right. I'm going to close this out with a clip from my debut episode of list that you can see how far I've come since, uh, since launching the show this summer. Uh, my very first guest uh, was Mike McCarg. Now, I wanted to have Mike on because I, I love talking about music. As you can tell, there's a lot of music in this episode. I love talking about books and movies and culture and, and faith. But man, I really enjoy talking about science. Now, here's the thing. I was terrible at science in school. Uh, I'm still <laughs> very bad at science. But there was a time when I got really into like the podcast Radio Lab really opened me up to a lot of interesting ideas and just a way to engage science in kind of non-traditional ways through storytelling. And then I got really into reading uh, authors like Carl Sagan, who kind of take the same approach. And that's why I appreciate Mike so much. Uh, he can take big ideas in science and distill them in ways that are interesting um, and kind of strips away some of the complexities. And you kind of really get to the heart of some of these ideas. So I wanted to I wanted to 
to, right out of the gate, have Mike on, come and talk about some of our favorite big ideas in science. But honestly, I kind of wanted him to just tell me about cool new science and technology that I wasn't aware of. And I wanted to have him on because I could ask him questions about things that I don't understand. Uh, And one of those things is the placebo effect, which I've always been fascinated by. How your mind can think something and your body will actually sort of like manifest it, even though it didn't have any sort of like pharmacological or, or even though there were for no like pharmacological or like medical reason, it's always been like a really interesting idea. And I want to get his perspective as someone who is an expert in science and just a, a brilliant guy. And he's just a really fun guy to talk to. So here is Mike McCarg talking about the placebo effect. My big idea, and it's not because I think there's probably uh, untapped medical potential, although there may be, but it's just something I'm very curious about, is placebo. I listened to an episode of Radiolab years ago, and they they told the story of, it started off with a doctor who, his, his name was actually Dr. Al, Dr. Albert Mason, and there's an interesting uh, article about this over at WNYCstudios.org that they released with this episode, people can go back and, and listen to it if they want. Uh, but essentially, this doctor ran out of anesthesia uh, when he was like delivering. He was he was a uh, you know he's delivering babies, and he ran out of anesthesia or anything to help the these mothers deal with pain. So he developed a a method where essentially he would convince them that he had done something that would relieve their pain and they stopped feeling pain during childbirth. Um, he went on to kind of study hypnosis and uh, he he came across this child and this is a documented case. Uh, like I said, you can actually go look at, at, at pictures of this. I'm going to read just an excerpt from this article that he began treating a teenage patient whose skin was so ravaged that uh, he that after two unsuccessful skin grafts, plastic surgeons agrees they agreed they could do nothing else to help him. Uh, Dr. Mason knew uh, he was up against a big challenge. Most of the boy's body, everything but his face, neck, and chest, was covered in a black, horny layer of skin that Mason said felt as if it was as hard as a fingernail, and it was so inelastic that any attempt to bend resulted in the cracking of the surface, which it, it gets very gross from there. I'm yeah. not going to get too much into detail. Sure. Uh, so uh, Dr. Mason actually used uh, hypnosis on patients that had warts before, and sure enough, by convincing patients that he could cure their warts with hypnosis, the, 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 the warts went away. So this is from the article. So he decided to start on the boy's left arm. He specified one body part uh, at a time to order in order to isolate a direct cause and effect from his hypnosis, and the arm cleared up under two weeks. That's at, later, he found out that he wasn't actually treating a bad case of warts. It was actually what had been thought to be an incurable skin condition. Uh, yeah. So I did a deep dive on, on placebo effect and how, for some people, it can work just as well as an actual medicine for reasons that we don't fully understand. And I was reading something the other day that people actually report side effects like hives even though you know because they're told that's a you know they, they don't realize they're taking a placebo a sugar pill uh but are told hey this is a new kind of medicine that may help you but you may get these side effects and they actually manifest the side effects mm-hmm. mike what are your thoughts on placebo and is it because i also know it has its critics that that they think it's it, it could be some degree of uh not manipulation, but but the, the power of suggestion is is pretty powerful, especially on on how people perceive how they're feeling. Do you think what what what, is, what do you think is behind dramatic cases of placebo effect working and its potential to do anything you know more useful than what we're doing now? I mean, placebo is well documented, well understood that it happens. Yeah, 
It has uh, an evil twin called the nocebo effect. Yeah. So basically, if you if media starts talking about wheat allergies, suddenly more people medically demonstrate wheat allergies. Mm. And it, you can start testing who has a nocebo wheat allergy versus an actual wheat allergy by giving people um, a scratch test or a pill and you tell them there's gluten in it. Yeah. And there's not. And people with nocebo still break out in hives. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're faking, by the way. Yeah. The hives are real. So um, what the heck is going on? Our thoughts and our feelings are real physical actions in our body. Hmm. They have electrical components. They have molecular components. So... Um, you cannot have a feeling without it impacting your body. Hmm. And you can't have a thought without it impacting your body. Yeah. And here we are, these, these sacks of amino acids and DNA and RNA and proteins and lipids and all these chemicals interacting in enormous complexity, right? Like, we need supercomputing clusters to... Literally, like building-sized million or billion-dollar machines to simulate like one protein folding in a cell, and yeah. they can't even do it in real time. I, 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 I just have to note too: you came up with the most unsexy way I've ever heard the human body described as sacks of <laughs> proteins and lipids. <laughs> I I don't mean to. I don't mean to. I just I'm mean just, like I'm just messing with you. I'm like with profound you. complexity. Um, and so viruses and bacteria come in, and they interact, and they cause changes in our body, and foods cause changes in our body, and how they interact with our immune system. So our immune system, when you get sick, most of what you suffer from is your immune system attacking a virus. For example, COVID-19, you know, we, we've done tests. When you put influenza in a Petri dish with human cells, the human cells start exploding. Hmm. Uh, and in like an hour or two, they're all gone. Yeah. Uh, when you put SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus behind COVID-19 in a Petri dish, it really doesn't destroy any cells. For some reason, uh, SARS-CoV-2 acts like a matador that just drives our immune system into a state of blind fury, and then it attacks our own bodies. Well, warts are an immunoresponse to a virus. Yeah. And so you can imagine if this, what I'm saying is the division between mental health and physical health is a false dichotomy. Hmm. All of this is we're talking about what bodies do. Yeah. Our feelings and our minds are part of our bodies. Um, and so that relationship is not deeply explored and is not deeply understood. And frankly, the finer points of our molecular biology and our neurophysiology are still pretty unknown. I tell people a lot. If you look at the the state of the art in neuroscience today, we're probably about where Galileo was with cosmology. (laughs) We just got a telescope for the first time and we're like, oh my God, planets are round. (laughs) Like there's fierce. You know what I mean? So um, that's where we are today. Yeah. And so, you know, there's no telling where that ends up going 
um, in our understanding of medical science. I couldn't even meaningfully speculate. I would sound not like Galileo, but like some rando <laughs> read a paper <laughs> well, by Galileo in that time, yeah. speculating on on relativity. See, isn't that interesting? That's why I like to, you know, you hear about some of these filmmakers, and I'm not comparing myself to a great filmmaker. I'm just saying you hear about in interviews with some of these directors how they'll do kind of one for them and one for us, where they'll make a big commercial blockbuster, and then they'll do a topic or, or a film that is kind of a smaller project that they're interested in. I don't really think like that with this podcast, because I think most people who, who listen are kind of into the variety, but I do like to kind of mix in with the pop culture. I also like to mix in those those topics like science and faith just because i feel like the more you kind of talk about those things even kind of the more you can appreciate uh music and movies and art that reflects on them plus it's just really fun sometimes to talk to smart people uh about things i'm not smart about it's a having a podcast is a great way to pick the minds of of people who are are really interesting cool and smart so thanks to all my guests who've come out who've come on the show this year and thank you all for listening so much hey listen and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with brand new episodes. But in the meantime, I know I say it all the time, but if you can leave us a rating and review, it really, really does help people discover the show. And hey, listen, if you have any guests that you want to see on the show or any topics that you want to see discussed, hit me up on Twitter at Jesse Carey. You can uh, just tweet me directly or send me a DM. I look forward to hearing from you. All right, guys. See you in a couple of weeks. 